Welcome to the History of the Mongols, episode 23, The Black Death. So this week, we're dealing with a subject that has generated more scholarship than any other topic we've covered by a considerable margin. The outbreak of the Black Death is not just of interest to historians, it is still a massive subject of research amongst biologists interested in the genetics, spread and evolution of this devastating bacterial disease. In the last decade, papers about this 700-year-old disease outbreak have been published in the top scientific journals. It's no surprise, as the Black Death was the single most devastating pandemic in human history, wiping out between 40 and 45% of Europe's population in around five years. For any scientist interested in the spread and possibly prevention of future pandemics, it's therefore a good place to start. Today we'll tell the story of the disease's impact and the profound effects it had on Eurasia, including, of course, the Mongol Empire. But before we get to that, we should start with the disease itself. What was the Black Death? As I'm sure most of you know, the Black Death is the popular name for an outbreak of plague that swept across Eurasia in the 1340s and 50s. Although the name Black Death itself is not contemporary, it probably dates from the 17th century. Plague is spread by the bacteria Yersinia pestis, which lives in the bloodstream of small rodents such as rats, marmots or mice. It was identified by scientists studying the Great Plague epidemic that struck China in the 19th century. In fact, the bacteria is actually named after the man who discovered it in 1894, the French-Swiss biologist Alexandre Yassin. Four years later, the mechanism by which Y. pestis was usually transmitted was also established by Paul-Louis Simond and was found to involve the bites of fleas that live on these rodents. The flea takes the infected blood of an animal into its digestive tract and the replicating bacteria then obstructs the flea's digestion. This blockage leads to starvation and the flea regurgitates blood as it feeds, trying to clear the blockage, resulting in thousands of plague bacteria being flushed into the feeding site, infecting the host. Rather gruesome, but extremely effective. The disease is of course normally fatal to the host, but the fleas, particularly the oriental rat flea, are able to survive sometimes for several weeks without a host, making the process of transmission easier. While humans are not the preferred diet of rat fleas, they aren't fussy eaters, and a bite could spread the disease to human populations. Once there, exposure to bodily fluids from an infected person could continue the chain. The best known form of plague and the type making up the majority of cases during the Black Death was bubonic, spread as I've described. However, the bacteria can actually cause another two infections, pneumonic 
and septicemic plague. The difference between the versions of plague is simply the location of the infection in the body. Septicemic infects the bloodstream, and pneumonic, as you might guess, the lungs. Pneumonic causes coughing and sneezing, and these infective droplets can spread the infection without any animal intervention. The fact that infection could be spread by contact from bodily fluids from an infected patient was not understood in the late Middle Ages. So what would the unfortunate medieval European have to look forward to if they caught the Black Death? Well, an infection with bubonic plague would often begin with the lymph nodes in the patient's groin or neck swelling and becoming painful, a sign that the bacteria was spreading. These are also known as buboes, from where the disease takes its name. This would be followed by the onset of a high fever, muscular cramps, headaches and chills. In the later stages of the disease, the symptoms became even more unpleasant, with bleeding, vomiting blood and death of skin and other tissues. The blackened areas left by the necrotic tissues are typical of bubonic plague. Then, in about 90% of cases, death. Incredibly, the survival rates in the other two forms of plague were even lower. Now today, thankfully, plague is readily treatable with antibiotics, although it still causes deaths in the developing world. In the 14th century, though, there was no treatment. If you were lucky, you survived. Most were not lucky. In the medieval world, death and infectious disease were far more a part of daily life than they are today, but nothing prepared them for the onset of plague. It should be stated that the Black Death was not the first plague pandemic to strike Eurasia. Seven centuries earlier, in 540, the plague of Justinian wiped out around 10% of the world's population as it swept through the Eastern Roman, or Byzantine, Empire, Sassanid, Persia and the Mediterranean. For a long time the disease responsible for that outbreak was not known, but recent genetic research has shown that it was the same bacterial strain that caused the Black Death. So the second question that arises, what caused this disease of rodents to emerge as the scourge of most of Eurasia. So it's here that our story first intersects with the Mongols. This is the Mongol History Podcast after all, so there has to be some connection. Well, one of the major natural reservoirs for the plague bacterium is the rodents, particularly the marmots, that inhabit the grasslands of Central Asia, including Mongolia. Now these areas were traditionally rather isolated from the great population centres of China and the West, but as I've spent the last 20 odd episodes explaining, the arrival of Genghis Khan changed all that. Aside from the invasions, in the years of the Pax Mongolica, merchant caravans, parties using the post system, as well as the armies of the various Khanates, travelled across the steppe regularly. Steppe towns, including Karakorum, became centres of trade and population. 
Research suggests that like the Justinian plague, the Black Death originated in China. Sources also mention that there were three major epidemics in the last 40 years of the Yuan dynasty. The first round occurred in the years 1331-34, to 34, which devastated Hebei province. The second round occurred in 1344-46, to 46, and the third ranged throughout the 1350s and over most of northern and central China. So the sequence would be that the plague bacteria spread from the grasslands, where it is endemic, to China, where it became established before eventually emerging into a major plague outbreak. It was then exported along the transport routes of Asia to the Middle East and on to Europe. On the shores of Lake Isikul, which is in Kyrgyzstan, close to the border with China, there are a large collection of Nestorian Christian gravestones dated from 1338 to 39, which specifically mention plague as the cause of death. Many academics believe these to be the first direct evidence of the epidemic. I should say that it's not universally accepted. There were some who questioned whether the epidemics in China were really plague or another of the many infectious diseases that were common in the Middle Ages, but it certainly seems the most plausible theory. From Kyrgyzstan, the plague seems to have moved slowly across the sparsely populated areas of Central Asia. The first cases were reported in Constantinople and Trebizond in 1344, and by 1345 the disease had reached New Sarai, the capital of the Golden Horde, on the banks of the Volga. As I mentioned last week, Sarai, in the era of Uzbek Khan and his son Janabeg, was a major trading centre with particular links to the Black Sea ports. During 1346, the plague spread south in the lands of the Horde, into the city of Astrakhan and on to Azerbaijan. More disastrously, it spread further west into the Crimea, an area important to both Christian and Muslim traders. 85,000 people were said to have died in the Crimea that year. It was the uneasy relationship between these rival traders that proved the spark that led to plague burning a trail of death across Europe. The port of Kaffa, now Fyodorsa in the southern Ukraine, had been established as a Genoese trading port in 1266 with the agreement of Khan Burke of the Golden Horde. For the intervening 70 years, it had been the most important trading port for the Genoese and a key link on the trade routes between Europe and the Mongol Empire. As an Italian enclave in the heart of Mongol lands, relations between the Genoese merchants and the Khans had not always been smooth. Toktai Khan had actually sacked and burned the city in 1308, in protest at the Genoese trading slaves to the Mamluks in Egypt. Osbeg Khan, though, supported the expansion of the Italian trading posts, and by the time he passed the reins of power to his son Janabeg, it was a prosperous city with around 17,000 homes.
However, a dispute between Muslims and the Genoese Christians led Janebeg to lay siege to the city in 1343. He remained at the walls of Caffa until February 1344, before an Italian relief force drove back the Mongol armies, inflicting many casualties. But Janebeg was stubborn and refused to give up. He returned and re-established the siege a year later. And it was during this second siege that apparently the plague broke out amongst the besieging Mongol armies. And as the death toll rose, the Mongols resorted to a particularly unpleasant form of biological warfare, as the Italian chronicler Gabriele di Musi described. The dying Tartars, stunned and stupefied by the immensity of the disaster brought about by the disease, and realising that they had no hope of escape, lost interest in the siege. But they ordered corpses to be placed in catapults and lobbed into the city, in the hope that the intolerable stench would kill everyone inside. What seemed like mountains of dead were thrown into the city, and the Christians could not hide or flee or escape from them, although they dumped as many of the bodies as they could in the sea. And soon the rotting corpses tainted the air and poisoned the water supply, and the stench was so overwhelming that hardly one in several thousand was in a position to flee the remains of the Tartar army. Moreover, one infected man could carry the poison to others and infect people and places with the disease by look alone. No one knew or could discover a means of defence. Once a peace was finally agreed in 1347, the Genoese left the stricken city on twelve ships destined for Europe. They thought they were escaping the Mongols, but they carried with them something more deadly, the plague. By the time the Genoese galleys put in at the port of Messina in Sicily in October, a large number of those on board were already dead, and many of the survivors were suffering from plague. The Sicilians were so horrified by what they saw on board that they turned the galleys away, but it was too late, and the sickness took hold of the city anyway. The galleys continued on, and would spread their deadly cargo elsewhere along the Mediterranean. Now the spread of the Black Death across Europe would normally be beyond the scope of the podcast, but I feel it's worth covering because it demonstrates the sheer terrifying scale of the disease. From Messina, the disease spread across Sicily, and then in the early part of 1248, the first cases began to emerge in mainland Italy. The major trading ports, Genoa and Venice, which had for so long benefited from their international links, now found themselves among the first places to face this new scourge. To this point the spread had been relatively slow, but in Europe the disease progressed at the astonishing rate of five miles a day. One of the worst hit cities was Florence in Tuscany. Here Giovanni Boccaccio, the celebrated author, provided one of the most famous contemporary descriptions of the plague in the preface to his most famous book, The Decameron. The book is a series of tales told by seven young women and three young men 
hiding from the plague in the hills above Florence. But the preface gives an account of the experience of the plague hitting a city. Unfortunately, it's slightly too long to quote in full, but it's definitely worth reading if you get the chance. Just Google Decameron Plague, and Decameron is spelt D-E-C-A-M-E-R-O-N. But this passage gives a flavour of the overwhelming nature of the epidemic. It was worse for the poor. They stayed in their homes, where they sickened by the thousand each day and being without help of any kind could not hope to escape death. They died at all hours in the streets. Those who died at home were not missed by their neighbours until they noticed the stench of their putrefying bodies. The whole city was a sepulchre. It was common practice for people, moved more by fear of contamination than by charity towards the deceased, to drag the corpses out of the houses with their own hands aided perhaps by a porter, if there was a porter to be had, and to lay the bodies in front of the houses, where any funeral cart that made the rounds might have seen them. Sometimes in the morning there would be more dead piled up on the streets than the cart driver could count. Often whole families were loaded into the biers. Priests arrived to find that they were burying not one, but six or eight, sometimes more, People had become indifferent to the suffering all round them, and the dead were disposed of as if they were goats. While plague was introduced to Europe through Sicily, it did not take long for cases to emerge in neighbouring France. It seems likely, in fact, that one of the doomed galleys that had been turned away from Messina continued their journey and made port in southern France, probably in Marseille. This would explain why the first cases in France emerge almost simultaneously with those in mainland Italy in early 1348. By June, the disease had spread across France as far north as Paris. As one of the largest cities in Europe, the death toll there was particularly heavy, perhaps 50,000 before the end of the year. June was also the month when the first cases in Germany were reported. The death tolls in the German towns were equally shocking. 12,000 died in Erfurt, 6,000 in Mainz and 11,000 in Munzer. Although the plague is generally relatively well documented in England, the exact time and place of the disease's arrival there is not certain. It was almost certainly sometime in the terrible summer of 1348. The small Dorset town of Melcombe was reportedly the first place infected, and certainly by the autumn of that year the disease was raging in southwest England, including a devastating outbreak in the major port of Bristol. The first cases of Black Death were reported in London in early November. It was at the time a crowded, dirty city with a population close to 70,000. The unsanitary conditions were an ideal breeding ground for plague, and according to the sources, 200 people a day were being buried at the height of the epidemic. New burial grounds had to be opened to accommodate the vast numbers of dead. An exact figure of fatalities is impossible to establish, 
although it would not be beyond the realms of possibility to assume that around 30,000 people died in London. It's worth pausing at this point to reflect on the astonishing progress of the disease in the year 1348. From an initial cluster of cases in southern Italy, it had spread across the Italian peninsula, through France, into Spain, Germany, and had even crossed the Channel into England. It did not stop there. Not long into the new year, the Black Death had engulfed most of the south of England and spread into Wales. By March 1349, it was certainly in Abergavenny, where officials gave up any hope of collecting rent from tenants, as there were virtually none left alive. The warmer weather in the spring allowed the disease to progress into the Midlands, northern England, and to cross the sea to Ireland. A Scottish army, taking advantage of the epidemic to raid northern England, became infected and carried the disease back with them in the autumn of that year. Modern researchers believe that around a third of Britain's population perished between 1348 and 1350. Even the most remote islands off the north coast of Scotland were not immune. The Orkneys and the Faroe Islands all experienced outbreaks. Scandinavia too was not spared the ravages of the disease. In 1349, the crew of a ship bound for Bergen became infected with plague. When it made land at Ascoy, nearby, the crew were dead but locals took goods from the stricken vessel, spreading the disease across Scandinavia. Over the next two years, as the epidemic continued to rage in the west, the disease slowly moved back east, into Eastern Europe, and then on to the Russian principalities, where the last known cases occurred in 1353. The only area of Europe truly unaffected by plague was Iceland, although it did suffer its own outbreak of plague 50 years later. However, some areas avoided the worst of the disease. These fortunate parts of Europe included the Kingdom of Poland, areas of Belgium and the Netherlands, and curiously Milan, making it unique amongst the major Italian cities. Why these areas were spared when bordering regions were devastated is not clear to this day. In the four or so years between 1248 and 1252, the plague is estimated to have killed between 40 and 45% of Europe's population. Every time I read that figure, I have to stop for a moment and take in the magnitude of what it must have meant. Of course, this was not evenly spread, and in some areas that were particularly badly hit, mortality could be as high as 70%. Of course, the devastation in Europe did not affect the Mongols directly, although it did have several significant impacts for the empire that we'll talk about shortly. However, as the events I've described were taking place in Europe, plague was simultaneously ravaging the Middle East and Persia, the lands that until a few years earlier had been the heart of the Ilkhanate, but were now in a state of political flux. The Black Death arrived in the Middle East in the autumn of 1347. It might have travelled overland across Turkey, but it seems more probable 
that a ship travelling from the same Black Sea coast that had been the source of the European outbreak landed in Alexandria, sparking a new epidemic. There were reports of a ship docking with the crew already stricken with plague, remarkably similar to the galley that landed in Genoa. From there, plague spread quickly eastwards to what is now Israel, and north along the eastern coast to the cities in Lebanon, Syria and Palestine, including Jerusalem, Damascus, Homs, and by the end of 1348, the northern city of Antioch. After moving along the coast, the disease found its way to the interior of Asia Minor, possibly bought by people fleeing the outbreak. Cities like Mecca, Mosul and Baghdad all experienced severe outbreaks in 1349, before the epidemic finally burnt itself out. There was, of course, no understanding of what caused this devastating disease. In the deeply religious 14th century, most regarded it as a judgment sent by heaven. In fact, there are curious parallels between the language used to describe the arrival of plague and that used by the chroniclers describing the arrival of the Mongol horsemen in Europe a century earlier. Gabriele di Mussi provided one such description. Tell, O Sicily, and ye, the many islands of the sea, the judgments of God. Confess, O Genoa, what thou hast done, since we of Genoa and Venice are compelled to make God's chastisement manifest. Alas, our ships enter the port, but of a thousand sailors hardly ten are spared. We reach our homes, our kindred and our neighbours come from all parts to visit us. Woe to us, for we cast at them the darts of death. Whilst we spoke to them, whilst they embraced and kissed us, we scattered the poison from our lips. Going back to their homes, they in turn soon infected their whole families, who in three days succumbed and were buried in one common grave. Priests and doctors visiting the sick returned from their duties ill, and soon were numbered from the dead. O death, cruel, bitter, impious death, which thus breaks the bonds of affection and divides father and mother, brother and sister, son and wife. Lamenting our misery, we feared to fly, yet we dare not remain. When traditional faith proved inadequate in preventing the spread of the disease, more extreme approaches began to emerge. The best known of these was the flagellant movement. Flagellants, men who practiced an extreme form of penance by whipping themselves until the blood flowed, existed in small numbers before the Black Death. But in 1348, as the plague spread, flagellant groups emerged spontaneously in Germany and large parts of Central Europe. They would travel from town to town, performing their extreme rites, and often presenting a letter they claimed had been delivered by an angel, justifying their actions. The sudden growth of the movement was initially welcomed by the Catholic Church, but its rapid spreads and heretical tendencies alarmed the authorities. The Pope, after careful inquiry, condemned the movement in October 1349, and the formerly popular flagellants suddenly became outcasts. The plague also led to a serious outbreak of violence against the Jews, 
who were an easy target for those seeking a scapegoat for the Troubles. The first violence occurred in Toulon in 1348. But there were massacres of Jewish communities in many parts of Europe, from the Netherlands to Basel and Erfurt. One of the most infamous of these massacres occurred in Strasbourg on St. Valentine's Day 1349, when several hundred Jews were burnt alive. All in all, this was one of the most serious outbreaks of anti-Jewish sentiment prior to the modern period. One thing lacking amongst the religious fervour was any understanding of the medical processes causing the disease. The most popular medical explanation for the spread was that it was the result of bad air, the so-called miasmatic theory of disease, which continued to be popular until the 19th century. No one made the connection between rats and plague, and there were no effective treatments for sufferers. One other remarkable thing about the Black Death is that it disappeared almost as swiftly as it arrived. By the end of 1352, the disease had all but disappeared, although of course plague would recur on a number of occasions in the next 50 years. Estimating the true death toll of the epidemic is extremely difficult. Records are fragmentary, and there is the tendency that we've seen amongst medieval sources to exaggerate numbers. Nevertheless, the most common estimate is that the five years between 1347 and 1352, the Black Death killed between 40 and 45% of the population of Europe. The death toll in Asia and the Middle East is harder to measure, but it was clearly massive as well. Total deaths over the course of the epidemic were around 50 million people, one-third of the population of the known world. A pandemic of this magnitude clearly had profound impacts on medieval society. We're not going to go into these in huge detail, as they really are beyond the scope of our podcast. There is a massive literature about the impact of plague on European agriculture, feudalism, religion and culture if you want to read more. What though did this mean for the Mongols? The plague was certainly not the reason that the empire began to disintegrate during the middle decades of the 14th century, but it was an added stress that compounded the problems the Mongol Khans were already facing. There are three things that are particularly worth noting. Firstly, the economic impact. This is fairly obvious. Across the empire from China to Russia, the massive decline in populations destroyed communities and left fewer people to work the land and fewer artisans in the cities. This in turn affected the income from taxation. And in China, which was already suffering economic issues, the decline in population and production further weakened the Yuan position. Secondly, the effect on trade. This is obviously tied to the economic problems, but it's worth making as a separate point. The Mongols had built a network of trade across their huge domains, and the Black Death cut many of these threads. The fear of plague meant merchants were no longer welcome, and those still willing to travel with goods suffered a particularly heavy toll from the disease. Along with the political problems, it helped put an end to the era of the Pax Mongolica. Thirdly, 
there was a loss of control. This is very hard to properly assess, but we know that the Black Death did not respect rank, and many wealthy and influential people were victims. This resulted in a breakdown of the traditional sources of authority, and for the Mongol Khans with their vast domains it made government even more challenging. It also led to a weakening of that staple of Mongol power, the military. This meant controlling border areas and vassal states became increasingly difficult, and they could drift out of the Mongol sphere of influence without fear of reprisals. I hope you found this little diversion from our usual subjects interesting. But next week, we'll take a look at what the events we've been describing meant for the western half of the empire, as we examine the end of the Ilkhanate and the partial disintegration of the Golden Horde and the Chagatay Khanite. We're nearing the end, but there is still plenty of drama to come.